is the Enter Sad Men podcast. Every rock and metal album you should own. Reviewed, rated, and ranked. Okay, so hello, rock fans. Welcome back to the Enter Sad Men podcast. Episode 38, the only hard rock and heavy metal show that reviews and rates and ranks rocks great albums. And sometimes we include one or two others, let's see. But we're trying to create this definitive hard rock and heavy metal hall of fame. Please do visit us at www.entersadmen.co.uk where you'll find all of our episodes and lots of other lovely, lovely information. Uh, I'm here as always. I'm Richard with my friends Steve and Mark. And as always, we have a random number generator, a random ball generator in a Tico Torres Tombola that spits out a number uh, and we choose a theme. And this week, it is the theme of producers. We've already done Max Norman. And this episode is the second of our list of brilliant producers. And it is albums that have been produced by Mr. Bruce Fairbairn. So we've gone back into his archives, looked at all of his best work, and we've plucked, well, at least two really good albums from uh, his work. And uh, they are as follows. Steve? Does mine count as one of the good ones? I think we're, we're yet to decide which of the two good ones and which yeah. is the not-so-good one. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, no, I, th- I think I've got a hunch where that was leading. Um, yeah, so my album choice is um, perhaps not one of his better-known pieces of work, probably because he didn't, he didn't do all the tracks. But anyway, he, he did produce half of it. That well-known Russian band, Gorky Park, and their debut album, Gorky Park. And Mark, what about yours? There was, there was loads we could have chosen from and i i spent um the, the evening after we'd recorded last week's the 1970 show um i spent the evening or the rest of the evening listening to all sorts of weird and wonderful stuff i listened to prism which was one of his early bands that he uh, was both a member of and produced we could have had you know balance by van halen there were lots of huge ones but in the end there was one behemoth lingering in the list that we simply probably can't ignore and i was quite interested to see whether it had stood up to the hype of the time we've talked haven't we about the albums that might just give led zeppelin a nudge at the top of the album chart at the top of the hall of fame chart and this was one that we have mentioned so i couldn't really ignore it it is the enormous slippery when wet by bon jovi Richard, you chose. Yeah, as you say, I mean, he's got so many, hasn't he? We could have done another ACDC. We could have done, I mean, one of my all-time favourites, which I nearly went for, was Blue Oyster Cult's The Revolution by Night. But I felt we needed, I needed to do a band that we haven't done yet and I think is an example of his finest work. And I've gone for Aerosmith's 1987 release, Permanent Vacation. And uh, let's have a listen to uh, some of his finest work and a few snippets of what we'll be listening through on this episode.
Okay, so there's a little taster of what's coming up on this episode. Um, and Mark, it's going to be you first. And by 1986, this is this is Bon Jovi. They were two albums in, and they were kind of they weren't quite in crisis, were they? But th- this this next album was crucial, wasn't it? And um, and it turned into this utter monster, slippery when wet. So uh, yeah, give us your thoughts. Opening album sleeve notes. Yeah, if you were to if you were to represent. Bon Jovi's album sales for their first three albums in a graph, it would look like the COVID graph in January. They went stratospheric almost overnight, didn't they? And um, and this was this was it's the it's the biggest album, biggest selling album of 1986 and and 1987 on the Billboard chart, and it was recorded. During January to July 1986, released on the 18th of August of that year. So, a big summer album. Uh, it was on Mercury in the United States, on Vertigo in the rest of the world. It runs to a little under 44 minutes. Uh, it was recorded at Little Mountain Sound Studios in Vancouver, which is where Bruce Fairbairn produced most of uh, his work. Uh, in fact, I would say probably 90% of the albums that he produced were produced there in Vancouver. Um, the personnel don't need any introduction, but I'm going to do it anyway because it's part of the contract. Um, John Bon Jovi, lead and backing vocals. Richie Sambora on lead and rhythm guitars and backing vocals. I'm not. I'm going to stop saying backing vocals. They were all on backing vocals. Alec John Such on bass. Tico Torres on drums and David Bryan on keyboards. So the five-piece band. This spent 141 weeks on the Billboard. Uh, on the UK chart, sorry, uh, reaching a peak of number six. It spent 118 weeks on the Billboard 200 and peaked at number one. Album sales depends on whether you take um, certified sales of CD, vinyl, etc., or whether you take the claimed sales. If it's the former, then you're looking at 15.75 million copies of this album. If you're taking the claimed number then that would uh, come in at about 28 uh, million um so quite a lot of albums sold a bit of trivia hugh mcdonald played the bass on uh, living on a prayer i have no idea why why alec john such wasn't playing based on that maybe one of you two know but i couldn't find it out anyway hugh mcdonald is now the permanent bassist in uh, Bon Jovi. It was, as I say, the best-selling album of 86 and 87 in America. It spawned the four singles where You Give Love a Bad Name, Living on a Prayer, Wanted Dead or Alive, Never Say Goodbye. In that order, they hit number one, number one, number seven, and number 28, respectively, proving what we already knew, that Never Say Goodbye is at least four times worse than Wanted and 28 times worse than the two lead singles. So there you go. Placed at number 33 in the list of best-selling albums of all time, what I I would say is this is an album that is well it's not as good as perhaps people think it is in my view but you may your opinions may differ what did you think boys no that's not that's not just your view at all mark absolutely not you know it's so likable in so many ways it's you know you've got the you, you smash it to standout tracks karaoke specials a whole lot of them in the cold light of day, and I'm sure we will wander into that light at some point over the next 20 minutes or so, you can you can very easily slay, say that there's a lot of stuff in there that's quite hollow, quite cheesy, quite cliche-ridden, slightly anodyne. It doesn't stop it being fun. 
this is fun. This is this is a great fun album. Will it do well in the Enter Sadman Hall of Fame? No. In short, no. And and, I, and I'll, I'll happily speak on your be, on your behalf on that. It won't make the top thirty, I don't think. And it, if we ever get to a thousand, and please God we do, it won't make the top three hundred. I just don't think it will. And the reason it is is as you said, there's a couple of absolute shockers on the backside of this thing. I have not played this album end to end for years, and and I know why now. Because side one's great. I mean, side two does have a couple of decent songs on, but it's just carved up badly. There are two, and the, the scoring system that we deploy will bring an album like this down. I, I, you two boys might absolutely adore, you know, the shite that's on the back of this album. I don't know, but um, so so for all its flaws, and there are many, this is still a great, great, great album, and I've thoroughly enjoyed listening to it again. Richard. Yeah, follow that. It's so well known. I played it so much when it came out. It's definitely an album of two halves. Absolutely. There are songs on it that are played so often on any radio station. I found I had to just reset and think about how I felt when I played these songs for the first time, or the first five times, or the first 50 times. So it's made it yeah, a challenging listen this last week to just get back into that mindset. But actually, let's be honest, this was an album that broke the mould. You know, the age I was in, in 1986, I absolutely loved it. So good and bad as the records are, as the tracks are, it's brought back so many specific memories of places, of situations, of ladies. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be interesting how we score this in the end. Do you know what? I, between you, both kind of hit the nail on the head because I, I'm super critical of some of the back end, well, quite a lot, about 80% of the back end of this album I'm hugely critical of. But it doesn't stop it having a really special place in my heart. If I never hear Living on a Prayer and You Give Love a Bad Name ever again, it will be too soon because I'm just tired of them. But they are massively fun songs. And, you know, back in 1986, nobody was doing what Bon Jovi were doing. So like you, I've had to reset. I've had to think, OK, we'll, we'll score the tracks on their musical merits. But actually, the, the, the bit that we don't capture in the podcast is that, special that secret source that makes an album special and actually if you scored that bit this album would go much much higher up the list than it is probably going to end up at the end of this discussion okay so the album opens up with the kind of now very 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 familiar keyboard intro from david bryan um in fact the keyboards probably dominate this album in lots of ways that and um and Richie Sambora's talk box. There's almost sort of Bach's Toccata and Fugue to it. It's very kind of orchestral, isn't it, at the beginning? It kind of gives way into this sort of almost, you know, this sort of, it's full of pomp, this song. And it's got a chorus to die for. When they did the Slippery Tour, this opened the set, this keyboard intro, and then they went into Raise Your Hands. But And it, it's a great song. It's a great song that I've heard too often. We did seven eight hundred Fahrenheit a few weeks ago, and we talked about the production on it, which bothered me far less than it bothered Richard. 
and he was making the point, you, you, your withering view of the production of that album and how it was all so much sodding keyboard with, you know, Brian up high and Sambora somewhere in another room. And I thought, when I listened to this intro, I, when you first stuck this record on the on the on the turntable back in 1986, did you think, oh, for fuck's sake, not more bloody keyboard? <laughs> yeah, it's keyboard masturbation again, isn't it? And it proves his standing in the band. Mm. Uh, but sure, answer your question was no, I didn't, because um, I mean, they'd, they'd, they'd uh, put out, I think, which what was it? Was it a bad name? was uh, on the first single, wasn't it? I'd heard that and thought, oh, hello, this is good. So actually, when when the keyboards came in, I was waiting, thinking, okay, yeah, you just carry on. When's it going to start? And this song, when it starts, it really starts. So I don't know. I, I do wonder whether they were trying to copy Van Halen a bit and just do that sort of kind of bit of er- eruption, I don't know, just kind of teaser but then once it all kicks off, yeah, I'm happy. At, at this point, when I put this on for the first time as an album, I was a happy boy. We come out of Let It Rock, and I'm now struggling to kind of reset because it's bad name. So you give Love a bad name, the first single, which I thought just was absolutely awesome when it first came out. It's got an amazing hook line, amazing chorus. It's it's dripping with summer. It's it's a great great song, and I'm I'm horribly horribly tired of it. But back in the day, this was special. This is it. It's what you've got to try and rewind. And I, I put headphones on full blast and closed my eyes and tried to think about how I felt the first time I heard this. Um, the opening vocals, the explosion, the chorus, this the melodies on the chorus. This is one of the best ever, one the best, I don't know, melodic rock songs. I absolutely loved it at the time. I mean, they got, because it's one of the Desmond Child's co-written stuff, isn't it, when they, when they wrote all of this stuff together. It's so hard to, because this song is so popular, to listen to it for its merits. It's still brilliant. I, I always think, where the hell did it come from? Because if you listen to 7800, you don't see this coming, do you? No, but isn't that the whole point about this album? It's, um, you know, I think they're under massive pressure to almost told, um, right, your producer will be and you will take Desmond Child on board to help you write some songs because, you know, you, you boys need some help. You, the, the record company could see surely this, this, this band still had potential, massive potential. They yeah. just needed help. And I think they got it. And it, and it worked. And certainly that track, which is, as you say, co-written by Child, one of four or five on this album, I don't think if they'd have had that input, and I don't think this would have happened. We'll come on to Fairburn's role in the production of it, but I think he helped massively to give it that big sound, mm-hmm. didn't it, that, um, that they needed for this kind of music. Yeah, I agree. And, and, and it's not that we'll have this conversation about the next album as well. Um, yes, they needed help, but, but they got it, and my goodness... But if you thought You Give Love Bad Name was good, Living On A Prayer's just got this. What can you, there's almost no point in talking about it because everybody's heard it. They know what it is. However tired I am of these tracks now, however weary I am of them, I still can't help sing them, but sing them when they come on. And, you know, that's a measure of the album as well. If you're in the right place, it's still electrifying, you know? Um, 
Bon Jovi channeling his inner Springsteen a little bit, isn't he, with the um, the working class American hero thing? <laughs> um, there's a little bit, of, there's a fair bit of Bruce in here. Going to say not the first, not the last time we're going to talk about Springsteen in yeah. the next ten minutes or fifteen minutes. But the other thing about this track is name a track that is like it, even the imitators, anything that you think is even close to sounding like this, because I can't think of any. Mm. We say goodbye to um, living on a prayer. And uh, we go into probably the first indication that all is not entirely five star with the album. I mean, certainly from my point of view, I was never, I've never much been a fan of social disease. And I'm, I'm still not much of a fan of social disease. Lots of horns, lots of keyboards. It, it, it feels, you, you described the album or the look or the, the concept of Bon Jovi in 1960 as a bit West End. Well, this is a bit West End and a bit too West End for me. That NAF opening does it no favours whatsoever. But, I mean, it, it could still pick up. And it, it's, listen, it's a foot tapper, isn't it? It's, um, but nothing more than that. It's a decent beat running through this thing. Apparently Aerosmith wanted it. <laughs> I think in Aerosmith's hands, this would have been a much better song. Yes. You can imagine Tyler with his swagger singing this. Yeah. And it's going to be dirtier. Yeah. <laughs> And actually, you saying that, I immediately like this more. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because there is the bit, as you say, with the, sort of the, the fake orgasm intro. It, I, I, I did think, well, that's not very Bon Jovi, is it? They're nice boys. So anyway, so, so any misgivings that you might have with social disease are fairly summarily blown away and obliterated in what I contend, proving that Bon Jovi can do ballads, I contend is possibly, arguably, one of the greatest ballads ever written. That would take a bit of thought. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it's a great, well, it's a great track. I mean, it is an absolutely stunning track. Um, that's one to mull over. Brilliant piece of work. I mean, it is an absolutely brilliant piece of work. Nicked from um, Bob Seger's Turn the Page, apparently. Um, and if you listen to Bob Seger's Turn the Page, well, Bob Seger's a much better singer than John Bon Jovi, that's all I will say. But take nothing away from this. This is, um, again, chronically overplayed. And to me, uh, uh, compared to Living on a Prayer and almost uh, giving them a bad name, this this just lacks the wow factor more than those other two now, which is odd, isn't it? This, is the more, this to me is the more wearing of, of those three. Bizarre, isn't it? How interesting, because because this is the track that I have never tired of. Richard? No, not tired at all. Um, this is their bad company. This is their spaghetti western. John with his passion for cow, everything cowboy. Um, and I think it's one of the best, the best, question mark, end of side ones ever. You've had a, you've had a first side that's packed full of absolute stunners. Um, and I remember the first time I put this album on um, and I knew Bad Name and I knew Living on a Prayer and then this came on at the end of the side and I was absolutely blown away. Uh, I, 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 I haven't tired of it at all. It's fantastic. Okay, uh, although it is still another fucking song from a rock band about being on the road. That's all I'll say. But it is the end of side one, so we turn the record over and we come to the song that they opened their set with on the Slippery Tour, which took in 
just about every territory you can imagine on the in the world. So this has been played a few times live. Um, and I remember, Steve, you and I seeing them at Hammersmith Odeon in 86. I think all three nights we went to that on that tour. And um, I mean, how good was this? Although listening back to the YouTube um, <laughs> audio of the concert, he's not quite as good a singer as we thought he was at the time. <laughs> um, but this was a hell of an opening to the show. It's a hell of an opening to side two. Yeah. To be honest, we probably knew that he wasn't the greatest singer, but we just didn't care. We only had eyes for him. We couldn't have cared less. We were starstruck. And he did have eyes for us, too. Well, he wouldn't have been the only one. That's happened to us many, many times. Too many times. Too many times. Um, yeah, no, this is, uh, this is, a, this is a, a fabulous start to side two. It's uh, proper get-off-your-seat anthem. It's, interestingly, there's all sorts of things going on with David Bryan's keyboards in here that you actually can't hear very well. It's kind of almost like a U-turn from from seven eight hundred, complete U-turn. He's got drowned out a little bit, but I think it's a great song, and it's so much better than what's to come. <laughs> Richard, yeah, again, listening to this album for the first time, you flip it over, this comes on, and I'm thinking, oh my fucking god, this is amazing. Because I've just had five absolute corkers, more or less, yeah, side one, uh, finished with Wanted Dead or Alive, turn it over. And there's this, I mean, I, I, this is one of the best side two track ones, in my view. Uh, I think it's got a ton of energy. It's beautifully balanced in terms of production. And that's the, what Fairburn did with the production of this album, I think is absolutely stonking. Absolutely love this song. Uh, so much that, well, let, we'll talk about the rest of side two in a minute. But at the moment, I'm thinking, hello, this is absolutely fantastic. Oh, this is a great song. It is a great song. Unfortunately, what we get next is essentially a prelude to New Jersey um, because the, the album, sadly, musically, goes downhill very quickly from this point forward. It does so almost as a it gets progressively worse. It's not, yeah. it suddenly drops. It, it steps down and then steps down again, then really, really steps down and then takes a small step up again at the end, um, but only a small step. And um, and the, the rot sets in with Without Love, which is track two. And my God, if you, if you ever wanted a very quick indication of where this album was going to go, well, the opening piano chords pretty much tell you. Um, that, that there is not a lot to redeem without love. To be honest, I was I was going to say I quite like this, as in I quite like it above the other two that are yet to come. In this kind of triumvirate of terribleness, this, as you said, this isn't the worst of the three um, by any stretch. Um, well, not by any stretch. It's just not the worst of the three. Also, Bon Jovi's voice in this is now beginning to jar because it doesn't work on this song very well. It really doesn't. Um, and it gets worse with I'll Die For You Next. And you, you just, you want to, you know, garrot him at that point. So, and um, they do this song unashamedly. They do this song and they've got worse and worse over the years doing this sort of song. And I don't think, I don't think it's them in their best. Like Bon Jovi, true Bon Jovi fans will say this is fantastic. Well, I consider myself a true Bon Jovi fan and I don't think it's fantastic. Steve, how does it compare to Silent Night? Oh, it's not in the not in the same league. I put this in the same kind of bucket as Silent Night. I don't, I don't know if it's a sick bucket, but the same bucket as Silent Night. It, it, I, I I like it. 
it, it's it's pleasant. It's nice. I'm, it makes me feel nice. It's John Bon Jovi trying to be Bruce Springsteen, <laughs> and and he has another bash at it on um, Wild in the Streets as well. And I mean, I know that they're kind of you know New New Jersey soulmates. Bruce Springsteen does Bruce Springsteen better than John Bon Jovi does Bruce Springsteen, in my view. Mm. But um, so yeah, I, so we take a step down in my view, then we move into I Die For You, and, and I'm dying inside at this point. And I was dying inside in 1986. Yeah, that's that's the important thing here, is that I, I like you, Steve, I'm, I've not played this album front to back in, well, probably since 1987, um, 88 maybe. And, and, and the reason is, the, the back end of this album is just not good. And... I so this is this is cut. It's got a very similar sound to seventy eight hundred, but it's not as good. And you know, I'd die for you. It's just, it's just, it's terrible. But it's not as terrible. They get more terrible. Yeah. Unfortunately. Yeah. It's really unfortunate because when they get there's there's a there's a great little little bridge in there when he says, you know, in a world that don't know Romeo and Juliet, and you're thinking, great, I'm looking forward to this chorus. It's going to be really good. And then the chorus is so shit. It's just so so shit just ruins it and the problem is he keeps singing it and he's just over singing this and i tried to play it very loud turn it up to 11 and um see if it made any difference and it doesn't he's he just his voice then just becomes a road tool it's it's not a it's not a good song and that is a really funny thing about this album when you take both the production and the contribution of people like desmond child so if we take desmond child first he co-wrote Two of the tracks on the first side, to Bad Name and Prayer, absolute belters. And he co-wrote two songs on the second side, which are the previous song, Without Love and This. It's clearly, you know, whether he elevates by a point or two a song, depending on where it was in the first place, I don't know. And then the other thing with Fairbairn's producing, on, on, on the first side, Without Social Disease, those other four songs on the first side are just so crisp and so clear and so punchy. And with I Die For You, there's just too much going on. There's, there's, there's too, too many keyboards. Everything feels like instrumentally it's fighting each other. I agree. And if there was ever a, a, an argument to end an album after eight tracks, the next one is, um, is it in a nutshell. Never say goodbye. Um, well, I'm just... I'm out of adjectives. It is um, oh, it's just terrible, terrible, <laughs> terrible song. I have this on yellow vinyl. It is just atrocious. It is, it is, I mean, it makes, in my view, it makes Silent Night look like Stairway to Heaven. It is just appalling. It's interesting, isn't it? If you go through, I was just watching it on YouTube, just looking at the video, I could say. Um, but if you look at the, if you read the comments from the thousands of people who comment on this thing, this song means the world to so many people, you know. I mean, it, it's a really important song, and they're all going back to, you know, proms and shags and boyfriends and girlfriends of the 80s and that, and you're thinking, you know, it's a song that means so much to so many people. And if you maybe, maybe if, it, if it strikes a chord with you in that way, you can connect to it better, possibly. But the bottom line is it's unbelievably average. They actually had a spare song lined up for this called Edge of a Broken Heart, not the Vixen song, because that would have been much, much better. But if they'd have swapped, um, and I have heard that 
And it's better than this, much better than this. They should have put it on. I think what I would say is, if you got your first shag to this song or your first dance or your first kiss or your first whatever, great. I'm pleased it means something to you. Musically, it's a fucking car crash. Keep Never Say Goodbye. Keep it special if it's special to you, but don't tell me it's a great song because it's not. Um, let's move on. Uh, so, Born in the USA, um, <laughs> and wet die, uh, ends on Wild in the Streets. I mean, fucking hell. If ever there was an homage to the boss, this is it. I don't mind this this song. I don't mind it. It's all right. It's okay. It's a closer, isn't it? it yeah, as you say, you have a good sway to it. It's fine. They end with a fade as opposed to a bang, don't they? Yeah. You feel you've been let down by what's happened before anyway, and, and it's going to take something better than this to redeem the situation. This is a really, this is a really acceptable track. It's a good time rocker, isn't it? It's exactly what it is. It's pretty simple stuff, and I like it. Okay, so highs and lows then, because uh, that was Slippery When Wet, an album that, coming into this, you would have said is one of the kind of probably the heavyweights in the list. I'd rather suspect it won't be, but let's do the highs and lows. Steve, start with you. Yeah, well, see if you can work which one's which. Um, living on a prayer and never say goodbye. Okay, well, I'll have a think about that. <laughs> Richard? Yeah, never say goodbye is my low. My high! I find it very hard to choose between wanted and bad name. If I went to a desert island, it would probably be dead or alive. Yeah, I... If I'm back in 1986, then my highs, you give love a bad name because remembering the way I felt about that song then. So that's the one I'm going to go with. If I were choosing it for how I feel now, it would be Wanted Dead or Alive. And yeah, there's never a doubt about which is <laughs> Fucking hell. Um, so there you go. That is Slippery When Wet from 1986. Uh, we've yet to score it. Um, I'm going to, I don't know about you, I, I'm going to write down on a piece of paper where I think this album is going to come, the number. I've just written it down and circled it. I have no idea. We've not scored it yet. But I don't know how you're going to score it. It's time to move on. It's time to move on by a year. And Aerosmith's, well, they're, I suppose they're a Renaissance album in many ways, isn't it? Permanent Vacation, Richard. Opening album sleeve notes. Yes, permanent vacation. So this is Aerosmith's ninth studio album, uh, recorded in 1987. But let's go back a few years. So, I mean, Aerosmith had done you know, huge. It began absolutely massive band in the 1970s. But in, in in the early 80s, I guess their star had had started to fade. You know, the drugs and all of the high life and success were, were taking their tolls. Uh, albums like uh, Night in the Ruts just didn't do as well as they thought or hoped that it would. And Perry and Brad Whitford uh, left the band and then rejoined. Uh, Done with Mirrors, uh, when they're all back together again, was also disappointing. And uh, really, they, they lost touch with fans and, and, and the addiction that, that, that they had at the time. And, you know, the million pounds that went up... Uh, Tyler and Perry's noses kind of ruled. But but I guess the turning point came with the collaboration with, with Run DMC on, on Walk This Way. And um, the band then decided that they, they, they needed to clean up. 
Brad Whitford said that that after all that abuse, you go dead inside and and you go dead musically too. Uh, I mean, initially, I think they resisted, but eventually accepted the idea of working with uh, some additional writers to kind of create that spark. And uh, our man Bruce Fairbairn was appointed as the producer. And uh, and once again, uh, they uh, we find ourselves in Little Mountain Sound Studios in Vancouver, where most of uh, this album was recorded a little bit in New York City as well, but but they, they, they basically moved to Vancouver, a place where they'd never played as a band. You know, Joe Perry said that I mean about the amount that you learn when when writing with other people. So they felt that it was a you know a, a very worthwhile experience. Well, certainly at least in hindsight, I imagine once they realised how big and you know how massive this was going to be. For me, this was the album where they really did rediscover their mojo. I mean the, the energy, the real Aerosmith. Uh, came back on this album. So, you know, some facts. It was recorded uh, March uh, through till May in 1987, uh, released on August the 25th of that year uh, on the Geffen label. In terms of personnel, a bit like the roll call Mark did earlier for Bon Jovi, uh, you know them, but they are a man called Steven Tyler on vocals, uh, Joe Perry on guitars, Brad Whitford on guitars, Tom Hamilton on bass, and Joey Kramer on drums. Uh, Chart-wise, it uh, did okay, I suppose, initially. Uh, 37 in the UK and uh, 11 in the US. But, I mean, the sales were massive. I mean, it went gold in the UK and has done five times platinum plus in in the United States. So it really was that the, the album that just reinvented the whole band and, and, and re-energized them and got them going into the stratosphere again. Uh, in terms of tracks, uh, it's a 12-track album. Uh, side one has got Hearts on Time, so Hearts on Time, Magic Touch, Ragdoll, Simoria, Dude Looks Like a Lady, and St. John. And then side two, we've got Hangman Jury, Girl Keeps Coming Apart, Angel, Permanent Vacation, I'm Down, and The Movie. I've thoroughly enjoyed going back to this album again, like like uh, Slippery or Met. It's not probably quite as challenging as Slippery, but I've still had to go back to remembering just what this album felt like. It's also got a few tracks on it that have been completely overplayed and you need to, I've certainly had to try and remember and reassess them, uh, but it's got a couple that I still think are absolutely brilliant so gents how have you done with going back to this one this week it's been fantastic you've got to, you've got to say that Fairbairn was an absolutely inspired choice producer because I mean these boys had basically basically been frog marched to the headmasters of us didn't they and told to fucking dry up get the stuff out your nose and produce a record we know you can do it. you've done it eight times before a varying quality as you as you alluded to Richard and you're not doing this on your own because we don't trust you. So we're going to get in a stickler, a, a bloke who's renowned for his all. We know he can get the big sounds out. You remember Slippery from the year before? You know what he can do. Um, yeah. But he's also he's also an organisational god. He's a stickler. He will give you 24 hours to write a song, and if it's not written, it's not going on. You need that kind of guy behind the desk to sort this out. And not only that, you also need some people to come in and help you write some songs. And the and the Toxic Twins are famous for their songwriting ability, aren't they? Over the years, but but the record companies, it's it's almost like they said something's got to change, or, or this just this just implodes. And anyway, however it mapped out, the upshot 
is it's just this fantastic blast of high energy rock garnering everything that was good about um this stage of the 80s or the 80s in general um and then but aerosmith have laced it with their own special stardust and ultimately you come up with an album that i think and this sounds like hyperbole but i'll say it anyway something that i think is bigger and better than any comparable album by any other band of this genre um at that time i think it's so so clever this album on so many levels inventive um imaginative i remember the first time i played this to sit through a 12-track album and genuinely not know what was coming with your next track, that's a tricky act to pull off. And to do it this well, it's just brilliant. It's a brilliant, brilliant album. So my first introduction to Aerosmith was the album Rock in a Hard Place, which I think was probably their nadir. I think that was the point at which they were almost completely wasted, almost completely all of the time. Um, it's got one really, really good track on it, which is Lightning Strikes and the rest of it. I just thought, I have absolutely no idea why people are making such a fuss about this band. But then I heard this, and I kind of thought, oh, my God, so this is what Aerosmith sound like. I bought it because I'd heard Walk This Way with Run DMC, and um, I thought, well, yeah, that sounds a bit better. Um, like you two, I love this album. There are bits of it that I struggle with still. I think it's another album a bit like Slippery When Wet that is better on the front end than it is on the back. Like you said, Richard, there are a couple of tracks on here that, frankly, have been played to death. I, I'm not weary of them in the same way that I'm weary of the two kind of big numbers on Slippery. Could I do with never hearing Dude Looks Like a Lady again? Probably. Um, but I don't mind it when I do. And Ragdoll, yeah, I've I've heard it to death, but I still love it. It's got, I think, one stinker on it, which is the ballad. But, you know, you may disagree. We do disagree on the stinker, I can tell you that now. So with the album starting, uh, we do have to ask the question, does uh, Mr Fairbairn have a plan? Because once again, we have a track that suddenly builds with some obscure bits and pieces and some keyboards and some jungle sounds and some whales and some guitar feedback and I don't know what's going on. And then slowly more drums and guitars fade in and uh, it's almost as if you're sitting in a room and all of a sudden Aerosmith come piling through a wall like the Run DMC video, leaving debris all over the floor and they're back. And then we're into a classic Perry riff. And then it just goes. And then just sits back into the most gorgeous groove. And yeah, it's, hello, we're back. Are you pleased to see us? <laughs> and we are. We absolutely are. You couldn't, make, you couldn't make that start up, Rich, could you? That whale noise. I mean, that's, as you say, it's just... Uh, what's the thought process there? Just do not get it. I love this. I think it's a brilliant start. So it, it, I don't know whether they opened with this in concerts because it, it would lend itself to that. I think it's a fantastic song. And already you're feeling really uplifted. And and, and that's where you want Aerosmith to take you. Absolutely. And and this this does it to a T. It's a great opener. Yeah, couldn't agree more. Um, they're, they're back with a vengeance, aren't they? Absolutely on it right from the first chord. Brilliant, brilliant song. Brilliant opening track as well. I don't know if we talked enough about Fairbairn's production on the last 
uh, album on, on Bon Jovi because he he did make such a difference. I mean, and again here it, it shines through on this track in terms of the balance that he's got across the band. I mean, you can hear everything, and particularly on this first song, Stephen Tyler is right at the front. I mean, it's as if he's standing in front of you singing this, isn't it? I read a lovely quote from Mike Fraser, who was another one of sound engineers, and he he made this point. He, uh, all the bands that Bruce worked with, he helped achieve the record they wanted to make. Bruce didn't write or reinvent their musical style. He only helped them make the best record they could at that time. He didn't make the Cranberries or, yes, sound like ACDC, nor did he make ACDC sound like Bon Jovi. Bruce just helped them make the great records they wanted to. And that sums the guy up, doesn't it? He knew you have to have an understanding of the band before you go into a studio, and I think he did. Nothing demonstrates that more than track two. There aren't many better track twos. You've started off on a high, and for me, when this album broke into Magic Touch with the just this beautiful riff and Tyler sort of just soaring over the top of it, and then for me, one of the hookiest choruses ever in a rock song, Magic Touch. It's got the bounce factor. Like you say, it's hooky. But it's such an Aerosmith song, isn't it? It's so Aerosmith. It couldn't be more Aerosmith if it tried. That's what I love about this. It, it's got this really dirty, sleazy riff, this very funky bass line running through it. And then, as you say, you've got Steven Tyler just doing what Steven Tyler does. Just outstanding. Cannot believe this wasn't released as a single. There's an almost a bit of 5150 about the guitar tuning. I, I love that sound. I actually love that sound. It's gorgeous. Um, and the, the finest of Joe Perry. So his, the, the solos on this album are awesome. Absolutely awesome. This is a brilliant song. And we, and we have got two of the best side ones of albums, haven't we? Because it, it doesn't let up. <laughs> and Steve says earlier, where's it going to go next? Well, we'll, uh, we'll probably go into a bit of a scatty shuffle. With uh, with Rag Dollar number three, pedal slide guitar from Perry, this wonderful sort of scattish vocals, almost rappy vocals from from Tyler. Perry's borrowed heavily from a Rolling Stones track. I know you, you you knew that. Um, and I dance around the kitchen to this. It's just again, so, as you say, so Aerosmith. It is, and there's a nice nice insight into Fairbairn here as well because he said he'd introduced Jim Valance had a part to play in the writing of this. Valance and Fairburn had been uh, band members together many, many years ago, and he introduced Valance to Tyler and Perry. And uh, Valance remembers the date. He says it was March the 25th, 1987. That was the day this song was written because Fairburn came in in the morning and said, I want this song written by the evening, and it was written by the evening, um, which is a kind of another illustration of the kind of efficiency that Fairburn brought to the deal. The working title of this was called Ragtime. The other interesting story about this is they brought in this girl called Holly Knight, who I know nothing about. Um, mm. And Tyler bitterly says that all she fucking did was change the name of the song title or something and she got paid fortune for the songwriting credit. I can't find any fault in this. I adore it. The only fault, and it's my problem, no one else's, is I've heard it too much. Doesn't stop it being an absolutely brilliant song. Absolutely brilliant. And that massive horn section, which I presume Fairbairn's playing in because he was a trumpeter, wasn't he? So... Super song. Yeah, agree with all of that. Absolutely. It's the horns that make it. What an amazing touch. I mean, it is the ultimate dad dancing track, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and for me, 
this is where the album really takes off into one of the most amazing, driving, sweeping songs. Uh, apparently, I mean, so this is track four, Samoria, apparently influenced by the Beatles, uh, particularly the start. This is one of my favourites on the album. It's just absolutely amazing. It's classic Aerosmith. Um, There's a a line on it that's round and round and round and upside down, and that's what this song does to me. I'm glad you feel the same way, because it's it's hemmed in between these two absolute Aerosmith standards. This is awesome. It's it's probably my favourite track off the album. I absolutely adore it. That note that Tyler hits and holds into the into the lyric Simaria, and then the music it's laid over behind. It's gold. It is sweeping. That's that's the word I've written down. A great song. And yeah, you're right, Steve. You know, something sandwiched between Ragdoll and Dude Looks Like a Lady could suffer, but actually, I think it raises itself up. And uh, this is just for me. This is a near perfect side one. Right, well, let's move on to the most famous song off of this album. Dude Looks Like a Lady. Massive, massive hit. I think everyone knows the story of this, don't they? Is the story better than the song? (laughs) Because it's such a brilliant, brilliant story. The lyrics are so fantastic. I I mean, love put me wise to her love in disguise. She had the body of a Venus lord. Imagine my surprise. I mean, it's just absolutely <laughs> brilliant. So where I am is the story's better than the song. It's a good song. Love the horns, love the rhythm and everything else. But actually, I mean, it's a high score for me, but not as high as others on the album. Because whilst I love the story, I love the lyrics, absolutely brilliant, love the swagger. Yeah, it, it, it's a good song. Never judge a book by its cover, nor who you're going to love by your lover. That just sums it all up, really, doesn't it? Um, in terms of what the story's about. I agree with you. I think the story is better than the song. I I, I still love the song. I, I don't need to hear it ever again because <clears throat> I'm, I'm full up on Dude Looks Like a Lady. You know, I can, I can sing it to myself. I can hear Stephen Tyler singing it. I can hear the band doing it any time I want to hear it. So I don't need to listen to it again, but it's a great song, but yeah, the story is just awesome. Makes me makes me laugh every time I hear it. Yeah, super super song. Takes me back to Disney World, Florida. There were worse queues to wait in than the rock and roller coaster queue because all you're getting is Aerosmith piped out. Really good song, just a fun song. And also, can't help thinking of Mrs. Doubtfire, and that kind of bothers me. <laughs> well, we go from the the horns and the swagger of dude to the final track on side one, which is called St. John, which, well, I've summed up on my notes as Dirty Boogie Woogie. This is one of those tracks, I guess, that harks back a little to some of the classic 70s Aerosmith, but I just love how this song builds and drops and builds and drops. Again, another favourite. I think this is a perfect ending to side one because it's, it's all been very sort of high energy and in your face and, yes, all different, but it, it's all been done at pace up until this point. And this slows right down for the start, but it builds and builds and builds and builds, and it takes you out on an absolute high. So you finish side one 
absolutely gagging for side two. For me, this is about as perfect a side one as we've listened to yeah, in 38 episodes. Since Bad Steve. I remember the first time I listened to St. John, I was so gobsmacked, I just did not expect it. Um, and thought, wow, wow, wow. It's, as you say, Richard, it's just, it's just so cool, so earthy and cool and slightly sleazy and just brilliant. And Tyler doing his sort of Sermon of the Mount thing. Fantastic. And at the top of the guitar solo, there's that unbelievably brilliant, wonderful bass run down into the outro. It's a fantastic. It's a brilliant way out of a side because it just drifts out. Okay, so we well, we must flip over. Let's get on to side two. And um, we're on a rocking chair at night with the cicadas and whatever around us. And we move from uh, dirty boogie-woogie to fucking dirty blues. Uh, Steve said earlier, this album just keeps you guessing. And when I first put this on, so where's this going to go? So harmonica and clapping and okay. And... We get a, a nice first verse and typical Tyler stuff. And then it just booms and opens up into this soundscape of a, of a bridge and a chorus. Uh, and again, one of my absolute favourites on this album. No, I'm not so much a fan of this one, I have to say. Side two is where, where the album, uh, it's never bad. Yeah, well, I would argue with one exception, but um, it's not bad, but I don't... I, I don't, I don't have the same feeling about this side of the album, this track, as I did about the previous six. <laughs> Interesting. Like you, Mark, this doesn't survive going forward, but it, like the Bon Jovi album, it, it at least lasts until uh, the first track of Side Two. Didn't they get sued because they nicked it off um, Lead Belly, I believe, the basis of the song, which was called Can't You Line Them? was the original song by Lead Belly. The proper old sort of, you know, sort of slavery number, um, which obviously has been given the Aerosmith touch. It's um, it's a very interesting story. One reason I like this is because I feel it's a bit of a nod to things like Sweet Emotion off of their earlier material. Okay, yeah, so for me, uh, Hangman's Jury, absolutely superb, but the album starts to drop a little uh, after that track. So we're on to track two of Side Two, which is The Girl Keeps Coming Apart. Um, for me, I would yeah, go quite fast shuffle, more straight ahead, straight ahead, sort of fast rock song. Yeah, the jangling guitars are quite like. Some of the Tyler's vocals on this annoy me a little. Um, it's not a bad song, um, but not up to the standard of those ones so far. That's really interesting what you say. I, Tyler's voice in this, I think it um, shows his imagination, his sort of vocal imagination. There's a, there's a lot going on here. I, I do like this song. I, I love the harmonica. I love more, yet more horns. But, and then they're just sort of like jamming their way out like a big band on speed. I just think it's fantastic. Such energy. Don't like this. I like it more than the next one, though. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let's get on to it. Here's a song that uh, so many people know called Angel. Mark, I'll let you go first. Um, they're better than this. Oh, shut up. No, they are. They're better than this. This um this is this is saccharine overload. Um this is just nonsense. It's just it's just schmaltzy bollocks, really. This feels to me like a band that's writing that's essentially writing by committee a hit. And yeah, they do it. 
they pulled that off, but I don't like it. Well, you won't be surprised to know and that Desmond Charles says it took him 45 minutes to write. Well, it sounds like it. <laughs> I think it's brilliant. It's just, it's just the next step on this incredible journey. We've had nothing like it in the previous 10 tracks, nine tracks, whatever. I think it's great. Okay, so, Mark, this is what I've written, my first line. Now, this is how you do a rock ballad. I... I... It's a bit of a guilty pleasure. I, I like it. I, I, so I think that everything they've done since, including Don't Want to Miss a Thing and whatever, are a rip-off of this. Hmm. So the orchestration in it, the singing, the chords, the structure. Yeah, I, I like it. Angel is followed by the title track, which has got, again... I mean, there comes the samples they use on this in terms of different sounds. Uh, this has got parrots and steel drums and hell knows whatever else in it. It's faster. I mean, it, this is punky. This is a punky yeah. song. It really is. It really is. It's also, you know, I'm a stickler for, for album lengths, as we know. And this is track 10. And what a, what a track, what a final track this would be. Really, really. Again, so inventive, just... It, you know, a tenth different tracks. Fantastic. Really, really good. So much going on in there, all the steel drums and the harmonica again, the bass line all over the place. It's a real feel-good song. And as I say, this this would have this would have finished it off perfectly. Yeah, I think I'm com- in complete agreement with you two that this should have been a ten-track tr- ten album and it should have finished there because the next one is my stinker. Yeah. I think this is fucking awful. Uh, this is I'm Down, which is a cover of a Beatles track. I, I just do not understand for all of the inventiveness. They've got the songwriters in. They've got this producer. They, there was so much creativity. They did a fucking cover. Um, and this is a track. I generally only listen to Permanent Vacation until the end of Permanent Vacation, and then I lift the needle because of this track. There is no point in me listening to this album any further. Mm, that's really interesting. You can do covers. You can do good covers. We know that. We, we've cried out for good covers when bands do average covers. This is just such an this is such a faithful version of a song that shouldn't have been covered. Shouldn't, just shouldn't be on it. It's just not a great song. It's, it's not a. It's not an Aerosmith song. And I'm down is followed by uh, the final track called the movie, which is an instrumental. And I mean, apparently it was an attempt to get back to some of their roots and some of their earlier tracks. And it's better than I'm down, but it's okay. But but for me, no more than that. No, Mm. I don't know if it does any more to either of you. It's it's unusual, isn't it, for them? Um, And you're right, it has got a nice flow to it. There's very little to find objectionable about it there's i mean there are some spoken words aren't there i think they're in gaelic or something from a friend of fairbairns from the vancouver gaelic choir by the name of christine arnott but no i don't um it's interesting i feel exactly the same as you i feel deflated after what's just happened and um the movie is a bit kind of take it or leave it because of that uh it's not orion is it um it's all right and there, you know, there are two other tracks on the on the album as we've discussed, which which I think are worse than this. But yeah, <laughs> this should this should have been a ten track album. That's that's the the truth of the matter. Yeah. So um, yeah, well, let's talk about highs and lows. So Steve, 
Yeah, well, the, the easy one, I'm down, is the low by some considerable distance. There's plenty of highs, so many highs. I'm just having to check through my scores now to remind myself of which one I did give the highest score, and it would be Simaria, rock gold. Yeah, the, the low for me, no surprise, is Angel. Um, the high is still, to this day, ragdoll. Yeah, and, I, and I'm, I'm with Steve on both counts, so I'm down, gets my low, and Simaria is just unbelievable. Right, so what a joy. Um, Mr. Fairbairn has done a couple of corkers so far, and we're on to his third, and uh, we move another couple of years through the 80s, and we move to Russia and uh, Gorky Park's debut album, Steve. Opening album sleeve notes. Wow, what a what a beast! This this isn't. This is Gorky Park, the Russian band who were allowed to make it big internationally, and you have to understand the times. And we live through them, so we know. So this is the late eighties. Gorky Park were an underground Moscow band playing Western style music, as far as you could do um, in the sort of Moscow underground scene. Dare say there were thousands of bands like them. Um, in that environment, they weren't allowed out to play, basically, um, until Gorby, until Gorbachev came along in 1985, Perestroika, Glasnost, all that stuff, a new freedom of expression, a new relationship with the West, and the arts felt that as much as politics and other spheres of life as well. So basically, Gorky, Gorky Park were able to fly out of Russia and go to America and see if they could make it big. But they did so, having already been tapped up a little bit by um, Frank Zappa uh, among one, and John Bon Jovi had also been alerted to them because they had this really good kind of guru working for them, a guy called Stas Namin. He's a fascinating figure, Stas Namin, this kind of mover and shaker from the Russian rock scene, weird figure. But, yeah, he was, he was, he was, he was a dream maker, and he, and he kind of got Gorky Park up and running and alerted them to people in the West and said, you know, Go out there, boys. Go and go and find yourselves, and, and go and make you know your fame and your fortune. So, so they did. They went out and they got lucky. Got a, um, a deal with Mercury, and there is no doubt that Gorky Park's novelty factor. Well, the fact that they were Russian just opened doors. Opened doors that simply would not have been even close to being slightly ajar had they been American. The bottom line is that in 1989, this came out. I mean. Well, I'll ask you, boys. I mean, do you think that a non-Russian band had tried to pedal this to Mercury or any other label at that time? It would have got off the ground because, I mean, it's almost a rhetorical question because I can see by the looks on your face. This is just kind of such an average piece of hair metal, glam metal, call it what you like, hard rock. It's it's so incredibly forgettable that I've almost forgotten about it and I've been listening to it all week. But let's run through the facts. It was released in 1989 on Mercury, as I say. It's 47 minutes and a bit long. Bruce Fairbairn did partly produce it, um, along with Gorky Park themselves. No idea how much of a part they played in it. A guy called Mitch Goldfarb, who was, again, a well-known producer um, in the States. And also, shamefully and almost embarrassingly, um, Messrs Bon Jovi and Sam Bora had a go as well at one track. And fuck me. Oh, Anyway, it, it was produced mainly at Little Mountain Sound in Vancouver, obviously, because that's um, Fairburn's home studio, and also somewhere in Philadelphia where Goldfarb would have done his stuff. The band, as we've said twice tonight, do, they don't need much of an introduction, but I'll do it anyway. 
Um, on lead vocals is, a, is um, <laughs> the legend that is Nikolai Noskov. Um, on lead guitar and balalaika um, is Alexei Belov. Rhythm guitar is Jan Yanenkov. Bass guitar is Sasha Minkov. Actually, that's big Sasha Minkov, I think you'll find. And on drums, it's Sasha Lvov. The highest US chart position was 80. It's a 10 tracker. If you're unlucky enough to get the CD, you get an 11th. Do you know what? It's easy to take the piss out of this. So easy to take the piss out of this. What bothers me most about this album, and it's a sign of the times, we've got a Russian band with an album cover that just screams Russia. Even it's got the hammer and sickle on it. It's got the Russian for Gorky Park on it. It could not be more Russian. And yet they're trying to be in another another American band. The one thing they've got in their favour, the one thing that makes them different to any other band is where they bloody come from. And they do not draw on it at all. They simply do there's a couple of there's a couple of moments. And that's about it. And they just had a chance to be different. And I just think they they just missed a massive trick. What do you think? I think you're doing them a massive disservice about the Russian thing, because I mean, you're almost dismissing out of hand the fact that they used to dress up as Cossacks. Yeah, sorry. And you don't get much more Russian than Cossacks. Steve. No, no. When I got this album, I bought this album because there was, I think the context here is there was a huge amount of hype about them because they were Russian and because they were let out of the, the East into the West um, and because they were friends with John Bon Jovi. That's what the media hooked onto. So I bought this when it came out, and um, it, as you say, instantly forgettable. I think I played it once, um, and I thought, uh, I don't even remember that I had that album, so I never picked it up again. Listening to it over the last week, I started off thinking, yep, this is about as average as I remember it being, so that's, you know, at least the, the, the experience, the user experience is, is consistent across the 30-odd years. Um, but I have to say, I quite like it. It's kind of grown on me. It's not a great album. You know, nobody's ever going to accuse them of writing a great album. It's got one. It's got one track on it, the opening track, which I just loved then and absolutely adore now. It's, I mean, it's plus de fromage. I mean, it's reeking of rock for, but I love it. Um, but the rest of it's kind of grown on me, and I quite like it. I quite like it. I didn't know about this album. I didn't buy it when it came out. Um, thank fuck for that. <laughs> um, yeah look there, there could be a track that would find it onto a playlist and it's been um, as ever an adventure listening to it but I mean good for them that they they surfed a particular wave so as I say it's um, it's ten tracks there's five on each side and once we've talked about the first one we can all go home because um <laughs> That's the one song on here that anyone really knows. It's called Bang. And it's about trying to get a shag, which proves that Gorky Park's very first song, that Russian lads, like American lads, they just want to get inside a girl's knickers. So the message is clear. We're all the same. The world over, we're all the same. Um, and this was their first hit. So And an MTV staple. It got them onto telly. Um, and so, therefore, it was the song that put Gorky Park on the musical map. And it's 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 a bit, you know, you've got a bit of hammer and sickle thumping and a kind of Cossack choir. And that's just, and you're thinking, brilliant. There's, you know, a few yeah, yeah, yeahs and da, da, da's. So you're thinking, all right, all right, I'm, I'm sensing a bit of Russianness here. He's trying to sound too much like Joe Elliott, but there you go. 
and it went gold in Denmark. And that's about all I have to say on this song. It's it's okay. It's 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 a decent opener. This is Europop, and I love it for it. I just I love this track. It makes me happy. I like singing along to it, you know, because I'm of that sort of age. And it's catchy, it's infectious, nothing wrong with this. But do you go out in public and sing along to it? Do you go out in public and say, come for a ride straight up to heaven, your rocket is ready and it's started counting down? What are you talking about? That's how I got my wife. <laughs> Rich? I, I do like it. I think it's a, it's a good start. It's, it's a good riff. It's catchy. And to your point earlier, in terms of all of the songs on this album, if you heard this for the first time, it's like, okay, so here's, here's a Russian hard rock-ish band, and you heard this as the first song, you'd say, okay, yeah, I'm yeah. ready for more of this. Yeah. Um, I just wish I'd carried on with it. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. It is, um, it is a decent start, and you are right. Had they gone on in that vein, um, the whole thing might have been different, but... Instead, they defied all known hard rock convention um, by hitting us with a ballad less than <laughs> less than five minutes into the album um, with track two, which is called Try to Find Me, um, which is the third single off the album. And whereas Bang did well in the rock charts, this did well in the Billboard charts. I mean, this did very broke the, broke the top 100 in the US. So they were doing good things commercially, you know. Now then. So they've tried to go a bit Scorpions, I think, and it, the intro and the early verses I can just do so without. It just smacks of, an, of a null pointer from, from Eurovision. It's fucking awful. But it does pick up. It does pick up, and it boasts a, a really good guitar solo from Beloff, which is just utterly out of character with the rest of the song, and it's really good. I mean, it's cheesy as fuck. Don't get me wrong. It's grown on me, this song. It's really grown on me. Take the first couple of minutes out of it. It's a really, it's not a bad song. How is number two on it? I do not know. But that's it, isn't it? They grow. They do grow. They're not great songs, and then yeah, they're never going to score high. Well, one of them scores a massive mark for me, but yeah, that's by the by. But the rest of the, the rest of the album, yeah, it's, it's never. It's it's going to struggle to drag itself out of the sixties, isn't it? At, at the best. Yeah. But but again, this has grown on me this week. Yeah, you know, this is a Russian pub band's version of Wind of Change, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Not a great ballad. And why, why a track two? Um, yeah. Because track three should have been track two. Yeah, well, that's fair enough. Richard's referring to Hit Me With The News, which is track three, which is, um, there's, a, there's a little bit of social disease in this one, as far as I'm concerned, but it's um nice enough riff, bit of a groove to it. The groove continues, gets a bit tiresome. There is a Russian element in this, which is the news, which is read by a Russian newscaster. And it's a it's a shameless rip-off of everything done by, well, both bands we've spoken about earlier in this episode and other bands as well. But um but yeah, this is all right. This is um this has got a bit more um a bit more bollocks about it, hasn't it? Yeah, it's all right. It's not on my playlist. No. So would um would Sometimes at night, track four and ballad number two. And it, uh, it bothers me what this sounds like. It's a dead ringer for something that I've been trying to think of it all week. And it's anyway, it's slow and atmospheric and builds. It's a big chugger of a chorus, but Noskov by now has 
dispense with Elliot and he's now trying to sound like David Coverdale and he does it much better later in the album. This isn't bad, it's just not good. Yeah, it it, it is evocative of something else, isn't it? And I can't quite put my finger on it either. There, there are a couple of tracks. And you're absolutely right about Coverdale. He, he's, he, he's almost better than Coverdale <laughs> in places on this album. Yeah. Um, but this, this track... Yeah, it, it, it reminds me deeply of something. The opening of it reminds me a bit of Love Bites. I was going to shades of bands like Mr. Mr. and uh, John Waite. I'll tell you who this reminds me of, Walk on Fire. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Good yeah. shout, yeah. But all of this is merely a prelude to one of the great, forget Blind Man, one of the great side one closers. This... <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, is Peace in Our Time, written and produced by Messrs John Bon Jovi and Richie Sambora, and therefore you would have expected a lot better. <laughs> I mean, this is this is just Hollywood-scale glasnost, isn't it? It's just, it's just so East meets West. It's everything about it is just cliched and horrible. And it's Okay, so do you remember when we were talking about Slippery earlier and I said that they kind of, Bon Jovi mor- mirrored the, the rocky canon so rocky one bon jovi's debut album very rough around the edges both of them rocky two better more accessible 7800 degrees better more accessible slippery is the rocky three it's big sort of pomp hair everything what happened in rocky four do you know do you remember what happened in rocky four i can't remember i'll tell you what happened at the end shall i at the end of it, Rocky united East and West. <laughs> That's what he did. He gave a rousing speech, and suddenly all of the history, all of that Cold War history disappeared, melted away in the Russian snow. And fuck me if John Bon Jovi doesn't pull off the same thing here. He's, he's an astonishing man. <laughs> um, I have absolutely nothing but absolute deep felt contempt for this song because it is cynical it's a horrible 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 song it's a badly written song it's a badly delivered song it's a cynical song it's done for commercial gain only and i fucking hate it (laughs) okay side two starts well i tell you what side two then from something shite to something really, really good. This is my generation, a cover of the Who standard, and you're immediately thinking, right, okay, probably not surprised that if they're going to do a cover, it's going to be a you know a, a, a big band and a big name. Brave call because everyone knows the song. I think they do a really decent job with this. So you've got a bit of balalaika, you've got a bit of core, Russian choral work, that kind of proletariat chanting that that you get with Russians. He said glibly, <laughs> um, but yeah. I just think it's I just think it's a pretty decent cover. It's not it's not faithful. It's just a, it's not a, it's not a genuine plagiarism. It's a decent reworking, and I like it. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you. And how often over the last thirty eight episodes have we said about cover versions? God, if you're going to do a cover, do something different with it. And they do. They absolutely do. And I think it's really really good. My generation is a is a song like others that we've talked about this evening, that I don't need to hear again. I've heard it a lot. This makes it a different experience. I really like it. Really like it. I'm really sorry. I think this is fucking awful. (laughs) This last week, when this has come on, I've just forwarded it. (laughs) (laughs) 
I like it. I just like I just like the fact that it's it's something different. You feel like you're getting under the skin of them a little bit, and and I wanted to hear more of that from this album. Um, and then unfortunately we go straight into a track, and we're back to you know Plan A, um, which is called Within Your Eyes, which is unbelievably bland, utterly formulaic. Could have been on 1987, couldn't it? And he just sounds so Coverdale in this. It's ever such a safe sound. Belloff, yet again, comes to their rescue. The comparison I made is he's got the Bruce Kulick role from uh, Crazy Nights rescuing the album. This is not a good moment, is it? Put peace in our time aside, because that's in a different league of shit. <laughs> um, this, the, this is the worst of the Gorky Park songs yeah. um, on the album the, so far. Richard? The chorus is quite hooky. But it's yeah, it's proper Euro pop, isn't it? It is, it is, and you you find you're struggling a thing to say with these tracks, and it's the same with Child of the Wind, which is the next one. Well, at least there's a little sort of whiff of Russianness at the start of it when they, I think they're shouting in Russian or something, and then we go a bit funky because every late '80s band had to have a funky song, so this is theirs. It's one of those backing tracks that you'd have during a. Uh a foot race in uh, Beverly Hills Cop or uh, Crocodile Dundee, <laughs> isn't it? I quite like this. There's nothing wrong with this. I get I get the Beverly Hills thing, Beverly Hills Cop thing. Absolutely get that. It is a bit... Um... Harold Fultermeyer. Yeah. Yes, it is. I don't mind it. Okay. Well, that's high praise. So let's move on to uh, <laughs> Fortress. Which is the uh, the penultimate track, which is a nice guitar and keyboard intro, and then it just wanders off into a piece of sort of OMD-inspired Russian cheese. This song actually has no redeeming features whatsoever. <laughs> the start of the show promises. It's yeah. quite moody start, and you're expecting yeah. it to explode or something, yeah. and it just doesn't. And you're just like, that's <sighs> no, awful. Mark? No, I'm with you. It's awful. We are facing the night together, sitting side by side. You are like a guarded fortress, ready for a try. Lyrics from Karen Cavalerian, a man who holds the record for the most lyrical contributions to the Eurovision Song Contest. (laughs) He's penned the word for eight different songs, and you may be surprised if that's a claim to fame, and you may be surprised that none of them won. That's Fortress. Um, and the final song on the album is Danger, which is um, which is an attempt at picking up the pace, a little bit heavier. It's also not very good, but there's um, there's a guitar solo which, on its own, does manage to elevate this, and you know that's been a, a characteristic of the album as a whole. There's a bridge or two in this song that are really quite nice, but the body of the song and the chorus are just shocking. It does get a bit confused, doesn't it? And uh, yeah, I mean, it, it led me to think about episodes where we've talked about bands that didn't make it, like, you know, big, like your Marseilles and the Grand Prix and the like. And you think the, of the talent that were in those bands versus what we're hearing here. But I mean, good for them. Absolutely good for them in terms of everything they achieved. <laughs> I tell you what, I do have a slight pang of sympathy that I, I genuinely, heart, hand on heart, believe that they were better than this, and that they were just they were just sent down a, a garden path they didn't really want to go down. But 
you know, hey, here's, here's the US of A kids, go find and um, yeah, just just a colossal misjudgment, I think, unless they are just shite, in which case I take all that back and I've got no sympathy for them whatsoever. I think I'm with you, Steve. I think I think these are young Russian kids and they've been out of Russia before in their lives. They've been seduced by by the, the heavy metal hard rock machine that is America at the time. But they've been manipulated, haven't they? They've been manip- I, I don't think that is the stuff. I, I don't know, but I suspect this album is not the stuff they were writing for themselves or wanted to put on the album, if given a free choice. I think yeah. they were persuaded that this was the right way to go. This is chock full of manufactured songs that were designed to, to be commercial hits. Yeah. And, and that was the plan for them, wasn't it? And yeah. I think I think they've been sold a wrong. I think so. I think so. There's got to be some highs as well as the lows, though, haven't there? Oh, God, yes. There is the, the, the high of Bang, which I just like anybody not to, not to like, even if they don't love it. And Peace in Our Time is, without any shadow of a doubt, the worst song I've listened to in the 1100 <laughs> that we've had to endure for this podcast. Richard? Wow, yeah. I don't think Peace in Our Time is as bad as my generation. I really just could not get on with that. But I agree with Mark wholeheartedly that Bang is the highlight. Fantastic. This is this is really stretching us, isn't it? Because um, I think every bit as execrable as Peace in Our Time is fortress. But I think the standout is my generation. I absolutely do think my generation is excellent. So where do we go with this? Well, I'll tell you what, we're going to go and score it. That's your lot. That's album number three on this episode, celebrating the work of master producer Bruce Fairbairn. We've had some pomp and majesty with uh, Slippery When Wet. We've had some pomp and majesty with Permanent Vacation. And we've had a Gorky Park. So we're going to score these and uh, we'll see what fate awaits them in the, uh, in the Hall of Fame. Reviews complete. Initializing rating process. Okay, so there you are, three uh, albums. Let's start off with um, Slippery When Wet. Um, so, Steve, you gave it uh, a 7.3. Richard, you gave it a 7.7 dead. And uh, I gave it, I was slap bang in the middle, actually, a 7.46 to give it an overall score of 7.5, if we're rounding up, 7.4. Nine, if you want to be more precise. Um, so, yeah, that was Bon Jovi, 7.49 uh, average score. Richard, what about Permanent Vacation? Steve gave it a 7.6 recurring. Mark, you gave it a 7.9. And I gave it an 8 dead. And uh, that gave it an overall score of a 7.858. Steve, what about Gorky Park? Hmm. Meanwhile... I gave Gorky Park 5.85, which I thought was pretty low. Um, but Mark gave it 5.74, which is what happens when you give a track 1 out of 10, isn't it? Um, and Rich, you gave it 5.9 for a sum total, uh, a relegation-threatening total of, uh, were there relegation? And there isn't. Everything in our Hall of Fame stays in the Hall of Fame. Um, but anyway, this is quite low down because it's got a final score of 5.83. So there you go. Those are the three albums that we've been looking at in this episode. So I suggest we go over to the Hall of Fame and see where they fall. It's time to put the rock in a hard place. Opening the Hall of Fame. 
So here we are in the Hall of Fame. Let's have a look at where these three albums have landed. So in the order that we did them tonight, let's start with Bon Jovi's Sibri When Wet. And uh, that's come in number 58. So uh, actually, wow. Um, I thought it would be higher than that. In terms of Aerosmith, our second on the bill of this episode, uh, they managed a bit higher and they've come in at number 32. And for Gorky Park, well, uh, much as I hate to say it, Steve, we, we have to go to the very bottom of the table uh, with 5.83. They don't quite meet the 5.91 that Raven got that were our previous bottom-placed band. Uh, but there they sit, unfortunately, at the foot of the table. Gents, what do you think? Well, I'm not surprised that Gorky Park are near the bottom. I can't believe they're worse than Ravens Rock Until You Drop. That's astonishing. But anyway, as for um, my thought process on Slippery When Wet was um, it is 58 because, and interestingly, it's 58. And even though it had seven tracks that between us, we scored nine or more. So that shouldn't be 58. And we know why it's 58 because there were three tracks on there that scored fours and fives and any any missteps. And uh, these things nosedive, and uh, I knew that had happened, and uh, I didn't think it quite be as low as 58. As I say, when we get to the top thousand, it won't be in the top 300. And what was the what was the 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 place that you wrote down, Mark? Uh, I thought, to be honest, given the conversation, given how badly the, the back end of the album did, I expected to see it in the 70s at the beginning of the episode. I, I wouldn't have expected that. Like you, I was kind of expecting it to be around sort of maybe 30s, 40, early 40s. I'm surprised to see it as low, but but not surprised given the conversation we had about it. Uh, permanent Vacation, I thought, was going to be higher. Me too. Yeah. But again, you know, it suffered through having, you know, it's that old thing. We keep coming back to it week after week after week. If you're going to put 12, out, 12 tracks on an album, yeah. they have to be 12 really good tracks. Um, so, yeah, I'm not, yeah, I'm surprised that, Permanent Vacation is, is as low as it is, even though it's got a high place. Personally, I don't think um, Gorky Park is a worse album than uh, than Raven. Um, but unfortunately, it has... Yeah, if you were... For me, if you were... If we were rating eight tracks instead of ten, it would be well above Raven. So it, yeah. it falls down for me on one, one track in... Well, two tracks in particular... Um, but there, there are a couple of a couple on there that I really quite enjoyed, and like I said to you, I quite like it as an album. It's just they made some really strange decisions. Yeah. Um, that is the end of episode thirty-eight. Uh, we're going to head off now and decide what we're doing for the next one. But um, thank you for your company. We've enjoyed it. We've had a, a good week. It's been challenging in all sorts of ways, partly because of over familiarity and partly because of under familiarity. Um, but we got there in the end, and it's another three albums in an ever-growing Hall of Fame. We'll see you next time. All music clips featured in the Enter Sad Men podcast appear within the context of criticism and or commentary, and as such are used under the fair use provisions of the exceptions to copyright rules of UK and international copyright law. To make sure the rock rolls forever on, Mark, Steve, and Rich urge all their listeners to show their love and support for the artists and writers featured on the show by purchasing the original music or subscribing to a licensed and regulated streaming service. Yeah.